Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. I want to say a, a great big welcome to those of you. This is your first Sunday back. I look around the room and see a lot of faces that I've missed I know that you may not feel the same way that I do. Uh, I, I don't know what to call it. Uh, I know many of you have been engaging online, and so you've been able to see us. But for us to be able to see you is like a highlight. So uh, it, uh, it swells my heart. And so I'm really glad that you are, uh, many of you are back again, even uh, today as your first Sunday back. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, we've been looking at the Beatitudes, uh, the, the definition of a life where God declares that life is flourishing, that that life is a blessed life, the life that uh, has the, uh, uh, the, the, the stamp of his approval is really what the word means. So the very opening words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he is dealing uh, with how to find God's great pleasure in our daily living. Now, as we process these eight or nine uh, Beatitudes, we're going to find that many of them are very easy to replicate artificially. And, and what I mean by that is you can act poor in spirit, but not truly experience it. You can act like you're mourning your sin and not really experience it. Uh, and so there is a way for us in the flesh to manufacture very similar uh, attributes. But it's also important that the attributes that God gives us, that he empowers us to experience through his spirit, here's how you'll know, am I really poor in spirit? You'll be able to see the world differently. Here's how you know that you are truly mourning sin in the spirit. You'll be comforted. And so as we work through this, we'll be able to see that he moves us from what is capable of us to manufacture in the flesh, but he gives us a spiritual reward when it's done through transformation. I hope that that makes some sense. So today we're in verse 5, and I'm only going to read verse 5 uh, for the context, uh, but blessed are the meek. And we're going to talk a whole lot about what it looks like to be meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So we've talked about being poor in spirit. You get the kingdom. If you mourn, you'll be comforted. And now if you experience meekness, or if you are meek, that means by nature uh, welling up in you, not if you show meekness, but if you are meek, you'll inherit the earth. Now we've seen the last several weeks that these beatitudes are paradoxes. I mean, these are not, this is not the way the world teaches us to live. The world would say that you need to feel positive about yourself. That's when you will get yours. It also say that you should work to be happy and to be joyful at all times. Always live to be uh, materialistic and, and manufacture good feelings for yourself. That's when you will feel the most comforted. And so the world really, 
If you want to live in this world's kingdom, those, those are the attributes that we, that we live for. Now, if you're going to live in the kingdom of God, you need to see that it's flipped upside down. The very thing that we wouldn't expect is the thing that God promises. You know, blessed are those who have everything. Honestly, that's the way we live, isn't it? Those are the people we look to as having arrived, right? Uh, we look at those who, boy, they, they seem like they are so happy. They, they have it all. They, they are always so, you know, in such a good mood or always in such a, whatever the case may be. They must, you know, it affects the way they, the ways we see them and we begin to envy them or be jealous toward them. But Jesus is telling us it's just the opposite. So as we look at this third beatitude, blessed are the meek, we want to see this paradox again, uh, the paradox of Jesus looking at us right in the face. So he does turn everything. Think about everything that Jesus taught. I'm just going to run through a, a quick, just a quick mental list. Jesus said the last shall be and the first would be. He also said that it's better to give than to receive. That doesn't make sense, does it? Look, think about it from the world's point of view. Which would we rather have from the world's point of view? To get or to give? Of course, I'm not even going to make you answer that. Dying is to be pursued over living. Losing rather than finding. The least in the kingdom would be the greatest. He propagated being poor rather than being rich. Weakness. Weakness. That he preached, not about strength. And it's about serving, not about ruling. But the, the philosophy of our world is we will do it our way. We will have our own beatitudes. Now Jesus' listeners here in the Sermon on the Mount, I want to talk about them for a moment because we've not really taken into consideration who is listening. Now Jesus, when he saw the people... You can go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When he saw the people, he pulled his disciples to himself and he began to teach them. So he is teaching his disciples, but he's doing it in the context of all the people that are around. Now, as Jesus begins to teach, we know this is true because of the next several chapters. Jesus begins to teach them as well as secondary learners. So he's talking directly to his followers, but he is actually teaching so that those just outside the inner circle would be able to hear. So let's talk about them for just a moment. There are at least four groups that are listening to Jesus, and we know that these four groups are there because of later times in Jesus' ministry where they reference these very teachings. There are the Pharisees, there are the Zealots, there are the Sadducees, and they are the Essenes. Now, what Jesus said in verse 5 was specifically applicable to the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed, and these are people that were taught uh, in the Pharisaical school, that they kept all the rules of the law. Now, that's noble. They would be considered the, uh, the religious and the political conservatives. They were Jews more than any other Jews. They were people who believed that God through his Messiah, they did believe in a Messiah, but they believed that he was going to supernaturally bring upon the earth his kingdom rule. The kingdom rule of God would be brought to them through supernatural means. 
that would not happen by military power, but that God would raise up his Messiah and by some supernatural, miraculous means, this Messiah would wipe away all of the Roman rule and the empire from all of Judah and would take himself to the throne in Jerusalem, not a cross, and that all of that would be obvious to the rest of the world that the Jews were it and the Pharisees would be all of the rulers of this Messiah's rule. Even the disciples believed this at one point. You remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, just before the ascension, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? They also believed that the kingdom of God would be manifested through the kingdom of this world. But of course, they were blinded. And Jesus even said in John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world, but my kingdom is in the hearts of men. That wasn't good enough for the Pharisees. That's why they hated Jesus' teaching. And they were always interrupting him. They wanted an earthly kingdom and they wanted it now. And they wanted the Messiah. And it didn't matter if it was Jesus or not. They just wanted a man to bring supernatural delivery over their natural foes. Then there were also the zealots. The zealots, they were not prepared like the Pharisees. Now think of it this way. Try to think of it this way. The Pharisees did believe in the kingdom of God. But they were willing to wait on this supernatural power to establish them as the rulers of this world. So they had a lot of patience. They had been patient for a long time. So they could look far, you see. That's how you can remember what they believed. They were very patient. And so uh, I know that's kind of silly. That's the importance of Sunday school. That's where you learn stuff like that, folks. Uh, so they were uh, far, I see, right? But the zealots weren't patient. The, the zealots were fired up. That's where the word comes from, zealots. It means they were very zealous to take the kingdom by force. Yes, they loved God, but they loved Israel first. And they had such a selfish view of themselves, they knew that God wanted to use them to establish his rule in the world. And so what they were always conspiring to do was to mount a war against Rome. It was going to be a holy war. But they were waiting for a Messiah general to come in with all of his weaponry to establish the kingdom of God. And that peace would come as a result of war. Now, can you imagine this? Can you imagine these two people sitting and listening to Jesus? This, this Pharisees and these zealots. I, I can imagine this is one thing that they had in common. This man that is talking about poor in spirit and sadness and mourning and sin and meekness. Of all the people that he is, the Messiah is not one of them. I mean, can you imagine this guy bringing the kingdom of God into the world and using Israel to bring the kingdom of God? Can you imagine what they would have thought when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those that mourn, blessed are the meek? They would have said in their mind, what kind of Messiah is this? This isn't the Messiah. He and his poor, sad, meek followers are going to walk around and establish a kingdom that we can dominate the world with. We have a better chance. This is why three years later they were able to say, we have a better chance of Barabbas being the Messiah than Jesus. Get Jesus out of the way and he will remove part of the distractions. Crucify him. It wasn't that they had anything against Jesus. It's that Jesus had nothing to offer them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
verse 26 and 27, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God choose, chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is the weak in the world to shame the strong. And as Mark put it, uh, the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus was coming into the world to serve, not to be served. But they missed the point entirely. It's the weak things. And praise God, it's the weak things. Because if it weren't the weak things, we wouldn't have a chance in the kingdom of God. God would not ever have chosen us. God would not be choosing us for a place in a relationship with him or in, in heaven. It's so easy for us to say that we're weak. It's an easy thing for us to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm just not very good at that. Or to be able to say, you know, how many of us have ever said, you know, Paul said he was the chief of sinners, but I really believe I am. How many of us has ever said that? Anybody be willing to admit that you've said it? I've said it numerous times. Paul said it, but that's just because I hadn't been born yet. I'm the chief of all sinners. But let me tell you, there's a significant difference if I say in a self-deprecating way, I'm not a very good person. I, I do sin. I am the chief of sinners. That's one thing. But after church, if I come down here and you come up and shake hands and say, Pastor Blaine, you are the chief of sinners. How much different do you receive that if you say that to yourself Versus if somebody identifies you that way. Is it different? Which one is true? Do you really believe that you are poor in spirit and you have nothing to offer the Lord? Do you really truly mourn your sin? This is the difference between pride and meekness. Meekness is able to take what God has said about us and to believe it. It's to take that, that intellectual knowledge of I am the chief of sinners, move it on down to where I feel like a sinner, and all of us from time to time, we know and we feel the guilt and the conscience that, that bugs us and we know that we're far from God. We, we feel all that. But to have someone accuse us of being a sinner is a whole nother realm of, oh, I can't believe that they said that to me. All of a sudden we're offended. But if what we believed is true and what we felt is true is in reality true, we, why would we be offended by that? So meekness is actually acting upon and identifying with what I know to be true and what I feel to be true. So when that pride wells up in us, it is only proof that we're not thinking right and we're not feeling right. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Meekness is about acting out what we know and what we feel in God through God's perspective. So when you feel that pride coming on, when you feel that who am I coming on or that defense that kicks in when you're accused of something or somebody says something about you that you don't agree with or don't like, that is proof that you're missing the first two options to flourish. You can't just jump right in the middle. So our, our thinking is off. Well, let me, let me uh, talk about this. So you, know, you think about Paul. Paul had one really big ambition, and that was to reach the emperor at Rome with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Because he felt, I think, maybe scripture doesn't say it like this, but if I could reach the top, if I could reach the top, the top would influence everybody else. We think that too, right? You think about superstars that give their life to Jesus and we think, oh, great. Man, what an influence they have. Or some sports star gives their life to the Lord and gives their testimony. We think, oh, man, that is awesome. But listen, it's the weak things, the foolish things that God uses. Paul thought that. Boy, if I could just reach the emperor. But all the while, he stripped Paul of everything. And Paul is the one who changed the world, not the emperor. I just want to, I think it's important for us to drop back and see how God can use us when we agree with his opinion of us. And eventually we're going to see that as we look over the next three weeks. So let me give you this. This is uh, opposition to meekness. This is the very thing that gets in our way. So if you're taking notes, I want you to go back later and kind of process this. Because this is, there's some pretty deep stuff here that it's going to take us a while to really process out. There are three types of pride. Pride is the attribute that we work on accomplishing the feel good, the think good about ourselves, the esteem and all of those things that we tell our kids are so important so that they can have the world. But the truth of the matter is it's the pride of our, in our own life that is the thing that gets in the way the most. But there's three types of pride and I want to outline them very quickly. And again, this is where our own uh, perverted uh, artificial Uh, beatitudes kind of get in the way. First is strong pride. Strong pride is probably the most obvious to see. Uh, Strong pride says, I want you to want to be like me. Now listen, I want you to think about this for a moment and don't get too angry because I know some of this is a little bit too personal because we don't like to identify as this. But there are a lot of people, maybe even all of us from time to time, that really want, we want to be the best. We want other people to want what we have. We desire that. So if you say, well, you know, it's... Uh, prideful people are prideful because they have more money, they have, uh, they're better looking, they have more influence. And boy, that pride would say, what if everybody had the same amount of money? What? So you look at somebody and you say, man, I wish I had what they have. Well, if you had what they had, they'd still want more because it wasn't about what they have. It's about them wanting you to want to be like them. It's pride. Look at me. Look at all that I've accomplished. So that is strong pride. It compares everyone to me. I want you to want to be me. Now, very few people would say, yeah, that pretty much sums up how I feel about everybody. But I want you to go home and I want you to think about it. There's not a person alive that doesn't say, I'd like for people to approve me. Second is weak pride. Weak pride looks opposite. Sometimes it even looks like humility, but it's not. Weak pride says, I really wish that I could look like you. I wish that I could have what you have. If I could only have what you have, then I could be something like you are something. But notice, there's a lot of eyes in those statements. It's really very reflective. It's, boy, if you only knew what I've overcome, if you only knew what I'd been through, if you only knew what I, 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 and how low down I am, 
And really what it is saying is look at me from a negative side. Look at me from a negative side. Instead of looking down on others, they're always looking up to others. Because weak pride wants approval, but from a different direction. The third type of pride, strong, weak, is the middle pride. And the middle pride does not care what strong pride or weak pride people feel. They are the ones who do not consult with anyone. They need approval from no one. They believe what they believe. And if you don't agree, I don't care. I'm the only one that's ever right. It's very neutral with needing affirmation because the only person that I need to believe in is myself. And as long as I'm okay with being me, then that's okay. I don't need you. But we need to understand that's, and how hard do we work to get into that middle pride world? You know, just be content. You just need to be satisfied with yourself. Look in your own heart. These are the, this is the message of the culture today. You don't need anybody's approval. You don't need anybody's validation. You just be satisfied with you. But the truth of the matter is, it's just still as much pride. All of these oppose God's viewpoint. Strong pride opposes God. Weak pride opposes what God says about me. Middle pride equally opposes what God says. And all three of these are natural inclinations. They come naturally, they come easy, and every one of us struggles because every, every, all of humanity is trying to gain the world by employing pride and self. What Jesus is teaching here is it's, it's an endless game that you will never, ever win. When you think about Peter, Peter wasn't always meek. Uh, in fact, he was most often loud, obnoxious, and combative. I mean, can you imagine the pride where Jesus is teaching and Peter actually corrects Jesus? I mean, this isn't, this isn't a meek, humble man. Uh, this is a guy who's pretty, pretty full of himself. But later, uh, Peter uh, has, has an encounter. You remember when he denies Jesus three times and Jesus said, you know, you're going to deny me. Jesus said, no, I'll die for you. And he hears the rooster crow three times and he has this kind of an epiphany. But after the resurrection, Je- you know, Peter really changes considerably in that encounter with Jesus. In fact, here's what wiser, older Peter said. Clothe yourselves All of you with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud. You hear that? Now listen, who of of all of the 12 that walked with Jesus, we probably have more insight from Peter's pride than anyone else's. I think that's what makes Peter's words here so important. Because while Peter was at his proudest, 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 well, while Peter was at his proudest, Jesus was walking right alongside of him, wasn't he? Do you know why? Because Peter was learning poverty in spirit. Peter was learning to mourn his sin. Peter wasn't learning to be meek yet. That was still a lesson to be learned, but he was still being comforted. He was still learning the kingdom of God. And so God, Jesus, is going to be patient with us as we are walking and learning these. But there was a time in Peter's life when he realized what God's affirmation was about pride he opposes the proud but he gives grace to who to the humble so humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he will exalt you 
Wait a minute. This sounds very similar to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Humility became a virtue for, for him. All pride, all types of pride can be reduced into this. A refusal to believe what God says about me. That's what pride really, that's a good definition of pride. So you don't necessarily have to say, I don't believe what God says about me. The truth of the matter is, the, the proof is pride. You don't have to ask yourself the question. All forms of pride seek a kind of, of, a kind of self-glory. In Hebrew, the word glory actually is translated weight. So worship is where we give God his weight or his glory. Pride is when we assign ourselves that glory. But humility takes someone else's opinion. Humility says, I'm going to value what you say about me more than I value what I say about me. But we get to choose who that's going to be. If we choose the world and I choose your opinion of what you think about me, then I'm going to step into pride and I'm going to work for your affirmation. But if I choose what God thinks about me, then I will experience meekness. And I will begin to not think less of myself. I won't think of myself at all. Because I will recognize that Christ is in me. It's very important. Because Paul, who was learning this as well, said this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of what? The hope of the weightiness in you. That's where your glory comes from. Not how you feel about yourself or what you think about yourself, but what you're doing with those things to take God's point of view. When you take God's point of view, that's when you receive the weight you deserve. But it's not what you think about yourself. It's agreeing with what God has already said about you in Christ Jesus. So before Christ, you need to understand how poor you are to bring anything to the weight of God. And you need to mourn who you are and recognize you need him. And when you do, you'll believe his word over your, your own word. And when you do that, you'll get it all. You get it all. You inherit the whole earth. So ultimately, this is why it's important for us to go through the scripture to learn what does God say about me? Who am I in Christ Jesus? Because there's no way to meekness apart from that. You can't concoct true meekness. Now, you can modify your behavior. You can act like you're humble. But there's no way to truly experience the humility that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ apart from the flourishing that God uh, denotes here. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, and I love this. That's why I included it. We spend the whole of our whole lives watching ourselves. But when a man becomes meek, he's finished with all that. He no longer worries about himself and what other people say. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see that there is nothing in me worth protecting. So then we take Jesus' words as truth. Now let me say this. I'm going to shift gears here pretty hard, but meekness is not weakness. So in, in our minds of what we think a meek person is, we're going to talk about not what our culture thinks about meekness. What does this word actually mean? 
It's not weakness. It's not wishy-washiness. It's not going along with the flow. It's not indecisive. It's not mild. It's not timid. It's not unsure of yourself. It's not even to be polite or kind. It's not cowardice. It's not peace at any cost. It's not someone who lacks in confidence. It's not shyness. It's not introverted. It's not simply mannerly and uh, someone who blends in. And it's certainly not a go with the flow or any kind of person with a lack of conviction. So what does it mean? I'm using real quick definitions that I think we usually place on top of meekness there. Well, it, the, the Greek word for meekness is praus. Praus. It simply means to be gentle, to be humble, to be considerate, to be courteous. To esteem others more highly than you esteem yourselves. In fact, this very word is related to the word poor in spirit. It just has a little bit of a diff, different emphasis. Now, when I say classical Greek, I'm talking about the language Greek, but outside of the Scripture. Classical Greek uses the word praus in three different ways, at least 2,000 years ago. The first, it was a word that was used by doctors so when a doctor, and when someone is hurt or they're wounded or they have some kind of inflammation, the drug that they would use to soothe discomfort, they would call meek. It was a, a, a meek drug. Sailors would use it when they're out on the beaten sea and when a refreshing wind would come by, they would call it a meek wind. Farmers would use this word when they would find a donkey that was capable of being useful and tame. So I want to just give you a quick context of what the word prowess actually means when Jesus uses it. This is what they're hearing. It is like a drug that is healing, right? It's restrained. It works for the use that it's intended to. A refreshing wind. You think about a hurricane. No, it's not a hurricane. It's a refreshing. It's wind under restraint. And just like a wild beast, it's not a lack of power. It's power that's restrained. So when you think about meekness, that's the word I want you to think. It's, it's power that's under restraint. What does it mean for the Christian? How does Jesus mean it here? It means self emptying. It means that we have to make a choice to take the whatever powers we have and come under the control of something else. It means self-humility. It means self-brokenness before God. It is the person who is dead to self. Listen to this in Philippians chapter 2 verses 7 through 9. Great definition. Talking about Jesus. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Do you see that? Restrained power. The, the Jesus who could summon legions of angels to help him. The, the God of all gods, the king of all kings, capable of creating with a word all that we can see and sustain it with a simple word. Unbelievable power. Humbled himself to the cross. And when he was obedient, when he believed, not my will, but yours be done, the Lord, the Father, lifted him up. Now, 
This sounds like blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, in order to understand this beatitude, we have to work all of them. These are, this is like a chain. All right? You can't just jump into the third one and say, you know, I need to work on more meekness. You'll fake it. You'll fake meekness for a while. That's why I believe so many Christians trip up and stumble around in their faith so much and they're up and down their roller coasters is because we stumble in and out of, you know what, I should be more loving. And we try to be more loving, but we can't. We revert. We try to be more patient. We can't. We revert. But the fruit of the Spirit comes from those who are flourishing in the Beatitudes. So if we will actually experience poverty in spirit and experience this, this mourning for our sin, we will experience meekness and we're not having to work for it. It's manifested in us. I think all of this is in the context what Jesus is teaching is someone who is willing to be seen as sinful. Someone who is willing to be seen for exactly who they are. I'm not afraid for you to find out who I am. Because I value what God has already said about me more than I value what you say about me. So really your opinion of me has no bearing on who I am. Believe it or not, I am my own worst enemy. My opinion of me doesn't matter. I'm going to believe what God says about me. And so now all of a sudden, I can get up in the morning and I can walk about my life really unworried about how I'm going to be offended or whom I'm going to offend or what I'm going to say because everything that I'm going to do is going to be for His glory. Can you imagine how blissful a person would be to be able to walk around this world uncaring what other people think or not aspiring to be like someone else? I think that's why Jesus said, blessed are the meek. They, they'll get it all. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, actually said, he who is already down can't fall. Referring to Matthew 5, 5. Think of Abraham. This is, I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations and then we're going to close. Abraham who is, well, you know, Abram actually means father, except his wife couldn't have kids. A laughing stock. There's no doubt Abraham. People made fun of Abraham. Abraham, Abram, your name means father. How many kids you got? Ain't got any. <laughs> why, why? And then to insult, the Lord comes and says, Abram, your name now is going to be Abraham, father of multitudes. Lord, I can't tell everybody my name's Abraham. This is why Sarah thinks it's so funny that an 80-year-old woman is going to give birth to this you know, baby. Who, this doesn't make sense. But remember, God's kingdom isn't like our kingdom. He does what he wants. All right, so... Abraham, who has just in Genesis chapter 12 been given this great promise of blessing. In Genesis chapter, in fact, God said to him, I want you to go out and I want you to look. And everywhere you walk, I'm going to give it to you. And all your descendants will possess it forever. The very next chapter, chapter 13, he takes his nephew Lot. He takes him out and he shows him the great vastness of the empire. He says, hey, uh, Lot, what part do you want? Now listen, if, if we were Abraham and truly believed God, you know what? I probably would say, maybe you wouldn't. Lot, 
this is your part right here. This is mine. But you know what meekness does? Meekness says, it doesn't matter. God's going to fulfill his promise to me. So whichever part you want's fine. I know I'm going to be blessed wherever I go. That's meekness. I think of Joseph who sold in slavery by his brothers. He ends up spending 12 years in prison uh, for something that he didn't do. And he ends up going into the palace and gets promoted to the prime minister of Egypt in its heyday. And his brothers show up and they're begging bread. Now, I would probably do one of a couple things. I probably, strong pride would probably say, I'll give you some bread, but first bow down. Weak pride would say, you guys really did me dirty. Middle pride would say, get out of here. I ain't spending my time with you. But what does Joseph do? Joseph ministers to them, teaches them the ways of the kingdom. That's what meekness would do. I think of David. You remember David? David and Abishai, who is a, one of his generals, is, uh, uh, Saul is asleep with all of his armies around him. And Saul has already tried to kill David numerous times because Israel wants David to be king and Saul's king. David is the popular choice. And he sees Saul out there sleeping on the battlefield. And so David walks out there with Abishai. And Abishai said, hey, let's do this one time. One quick stab to the chest. He'll never know it hit him. We won't have to do it twice. David said, no, I just want him to know that I've been here. The Lord will exalt me whenever he's ready. The Lord will take care of Saul. I'm just going to take the power that I have right now and restrain it. That's meekness. You think about all the things that Jesus is able to do. Jesus is knowingly going to the cross and he washes his betrayer's feet. He's hanging between two thieves and he says, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's, that's meekness. So we look at the illustrations of men like Moses. By the way, the, the Bible says that in the book of Numbers that, that there's never been a meeker man than Moses. The meekest man of all the earth. It's crazy because I think of meekness. I don't think of a man coming off the mountain and taking the Ten Commandments and throwing them on a golden statue. When I think of meek, the meekness, the mild, gentle Jesus, we don't think of him going in with a whip and driving the money launderers and the money grabbers out of the temple. Over and over we see these things happening with these meek people. So they must have breakdowns of meekness from time to time. But that's not true. You look at every time these meek men respond, it's not to defend themselves. It's to defend the weightiness of God's name. That's when meek men act. I will always defend God's name. My name, what difference does that make? His name is the name that we live for. Now listen, when you live for the name of God, you'll be able to speak for the name of God. When you hear people take God's name in vain, there was a time when we would correct people. Not so much anymore. We don't want to offend anybody because we need their approval. Meek men step into a situation to defend God's weightiness, His glory. He's the name that matters, not mine. I'd go to the four corners of the earth to defend my reputation. But I won't tell the person beside me to, to not talk like that. Isn't that funny? We've got a lot to learn about believing what God says.
and defending his glory and stop defending ours. When you live in such a way, you will flourish because the things of this world won't attract you anymore. But we will become, when Christ in us, the hope of glory, we will recognize that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to me. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus, he gets it all. And I'm joint heirs with Jesus. Why would I care what people think? Now you say, well, we better care what people think or less people would live unrestrained. No, no, no. That's why the first two flourishings are so important. Because you need to have a mental awareness of what sin is and your own energy in it. And you need to also mourn. This will lead us to holiness. And when we're holy, we don't have any reason to defend ourselves. Because it's for God's glory that we live, not our own. Man, how liberating is that? How liberating is that? To be able to live in such a way. What Jesus is doing is he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots. And he is saying, the hope doesn't come from his kingdom. The hope comes from what you're about to see in me for the next three years. And if you will learn of me, take my yoke upon you for I am easy, gentle. Pra-us is the word. And if you take me, you'll take my meekness. And you'll defend the glory of the Father. And when you defend the glory of the Father, you'll inherit the earth. Why would we settle for this kingdom when we can have one that won't pass away? Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word this morning. I pray that we take our lives. I think it's interesting that, you know, your teaching upends everything that comes natural to us. And when the disciples are first unleashed in the book of Acts and they begin to go out and to preach your kingdom, it's actually said of them that they turned the world upside down. So, Lord, I pray that our lives would be turned upside down. I pray... Lord, I know that we got a lot of work to do because our lives look so much like the kingdom of this world. In fact, I'm afraid that we don't even recognize how different you've called us to live. So, Lord, we, we do want to flourish, but we want to flourish for your glory, not our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just before you go, I want us to just spend a moment or two. Uh, not, not pretending like you're the only one here, but I want you just to stay seated for a moment or two, and I want us just to search the Lord, and I want us to ask Him if He would reveal some areas in our life where we might be prideful, we may not even know it. But, but those elements and symptoms of pride only point out glaring issues with the first two. And so, Lord, reveal to us our lack of mourning for our sin. Reveal to us our sin. Lord, help us to be aware of who we are in you. So it's one thing for somebody to lead us in prayer. It's quite another for us to spend a moment or two in private prayer asking the Lord to search me and know my heart. Reveal it to me. So uh, I'm not asking you to stay long, but I'm asking you to stay just stay a moment and hear from him and uh, pour your heart out before him and, and then continue to walk in that prayer. And uh, once you have prayed, you're you're dismissed. And again, I'm so glad that you're here to worship the Lord with us together. If you need help finding or taking your next step, 
send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.